Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We're on season 10, but for listeners who might be unfamiliar with all this, the idea behind the show is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Wigglesworth. Now, I think it's safe to say that Sarah has been a pioneer of British architecture through her eponymous practice. Over the years, the projects have included cultural centres such as Siobhan Davis Dance Studios, housing schemes like Umpire View in Harrow and Trent Basin in Nottingham, and a fistful of thoughtful, sensitively designed schools, including Roseacres Primary School in Essex and Mellor Primary School in the Peak District. She made her name, though, with her own home, the revolutionary Stock Orchard Street off London's Caledonia Road. The house, which is 20 years old this year, used a plethora of low-tech materials such as rubble, sandbags and most famously straw bales to change the way that people thought about environmentally conscious architecture. The straw bale house, as it was quickly nicknamed, also appeared on the first ever series of grand designs. In 2003, Sarah was awarded an MBE for her services to architecture, while she was made Royal Designer for Industry in 2012. She was Professor of Architecture at the University of Sheffield for 19 years, where she led the Dwell Research Project, designing exemplary neighbourhoods and housing for older people. Hello, Sarah. Are you there? I'm here. Ah, excellent. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> That's a pleasure. It's no problem at all. Uh, I've got to ask the question. I have to ask it. I've been asking it first up all year for the last 12, 13 months. I'm hoping one day not to have to ask it, but the pandemic. How have you coped both personally and professionally? Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I have actually coped very well. I think it it. suits my temperament (laughs) (laughs) in some ways. I mean, the office has been lonely, although people are beginning to drift back in again. Right. But I must admit to feeling sometimes feelings of slight smugness because I think what we designed at Stock Orchard Street is kind of the apocalypse and pandemic panacea, you know, because we live and work uh, side by side. And so Mm. for me, going into the office was business as usual. Mm. Everything's been here, the photocopier, you know, all the phones and everything. And it's just been amazing. Yeah, it is lonely. And I think what I've realized is uh, how great office culture is, you know, studio culture, Mm. just having people around, earwigging what's going on being able to help out if someone's floundering, whatever, you know, and it's just more than work, isn't it? It's more than work. You're building a culture, basically, and you're sharing experience with other people. And that's really nice. You know, yeah. I learn, they learn, we swap, you know, uh, it's great. But you've had work on the slate. There's been stuff to do. We've actually won quite a lot of work during lockdown, which is extraordinary, really, isn't it? Congratulations. Yeah. So we, and we didn't follow anybody except for one admin assistant for a very short period of time, three weeks, I think, Mm. last summer when things were a little bit dull on the kind of uh, social media front. Um, But apart from that, no, everyone's kept busy. In fact, we've recruited three new people during lockdown, so I really can't complain. No, obviously not. Uh, So how (laughs) many people are you now? We are 10. Okay. And is that the ideal size? I mean, you you wouldn't want to get any bigger or? Yeah. I think 10 is a good number to keep the studio compact and everyone knowing each other and everyone being interested in what's going on and allowing myself to sort of get a view of what's going on everywhere. You know, we have been up to 15, 
And at that point, I felt I'm sort of losing control. Mm. Not that I'm a real control freak, but it's just I like to know what's going on around. And I mean, when you're juggling that many projects, it becomes a bit difficult. Yeah, I think there's a real desire to keep it small. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, really, in this particular episode, I'm keen to focus on your house, which rather remarkably is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Yeah. Do you get fed up of talking about it, by the way? I'm hoping not for the purposes of this recording. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really get fed up with talking about it, but I'm quite surprised by how people's interest is still there. And in a way, that's very heartening. I kind of feel that maybe because of that, we obviously did something which resonated with people and that's still relevant. In fact, it's probably more relevant now than it was then. Mm. But when I look back on it and thinking about the sort of things we were thinking about when we were designing it, I think they are more and more urgent now. And that's one of the reasons that it still resonates. And I think it was extraordinarily prescient in some ways. I mean, you know, not to blow my own trumpet, but I'm just saying that Some of the issues that it raised around, say, the cradle-to-cradle operation of manufacturing, about recycled products, about trying to find a kind of um, aesthetic around green that wasn't just about neo-vernacular. You know, I think all of those things are still the project. You know, in fact, they're more urgent now because of climate change. Mm. Can we set the scene for people that that maybe don't know the house because some of the audience will be architects, I think, but plenty of them won't be. So in the first instance, maybe you could describe the site and and the site's history. Yeah. So the site is at the end of a cul-de-sac off the Caledonian Road, which is um, inner London, really, Islington. So it's the very north end of Barnsbury, but it's in a not particularly beautiful area. It's a kind of backland site left over from actually the development of the railway as it left King's Cross and our site abuts the railway line. Mm. When we found it, which was in an auction catalogue actually, it was being sold off by British Rail just before privatisation and it had on it a forge, which is a sort of little leftover business, I guess, from A, the railways and B, the world of taxis, which is very big around here, partly because Knowledge Corner's just round the corner on the Cali Road, or it was before it disappeared. And there's a lot of car body and repair yards at the top end of the street. And they would come down to the forge to have what they produce fitted on the underside of their chassis, which was leaf springs. They were oh. making leaf springs for rolling stock and vintage cars. And actually, this whole area had been hitherto you know, part of the Caledonian meat market operation, you know, when meat packing and cattle pens were all around this area. And and there is a history of sort of small industrial sort of production sites. But this one started in the war. And when we spotted it, we thought, well, that would make an interesting development and didn't realize at the time that the site was actually bigger than we anticipated (laughs) because there was a section (laughs) along the railway line which we didn't realize we were going to be owners of. So originally, it was just a plan about building a house. And I think, you know, the origin of it was that Jeremy and I, my partner Jeremy and I, you know, we were teaching at the time and I was running a small practice and we were really interested in sort of how far could you push the envelope, really. I should explain that Jeremy is Jeremy Till, who nowadays heads up Central St. Martin. Central St. Martin, Mm. that's right, yeah. But at that time, you know, we were just sort of young architects sort of breaking our own ground in our different patches, I suppose. And I think I was very struck by the fact that 
what you talk about in a school of architecture is so ambitious compared with what typically you get to do as a small practice, you know, emerging into London. And uh, we just thought, wouldn't it be interesting to see what we could do to really push the envelope? And um, amazingly, we managed to acquire this site. And then we set about trying to find somewhere else for these this forge to go, which wasn't easy. <laughs> and when we realized that we owned a bigger plot than we had imagined, then that blossomed into the idea of, well, we could build an office as well as a house. And so right. this site now contains a house and my office. They are joined together, but they're completely separate so that you can leave one world behind and go into the other. What's really astonishing about it is that the plot, this huge plot in central London, cost you £75,000 20 years ago, which says something about London house prices, I guess. That's right. I know. It really does. And I mean, we (laughs) thought that wasn't a bad bargain at the time, actually, which is incredible. (laughs) And I mean, you know, had we been more hard-nosed, we could have built probably six terraced houses around a muse, but we didn't even think about it at the time. It was just on a completely hot pursuit, mad pursuit for, you know, doing our own thing. And that's, I guess, the sort of Wisdom of old age applied to youth when you're just (laughs) full of beans and you just think you're going to conquer the world, you know. But also you're in a conservation area as well, aren't you? Yes, the conservation area ends on our boundary. And that was one of the things that we were concerned about when we were drawing up these plans. But I mean, we had a planning consultant that we employed and he gave us some advice, which was to not talk to the planners at all before we started work. And I must say, I thought I was daft because that's very much against conventional wisdom, but actually he was dead right. So we did hold engagement events with our neighbors and told them what we we're going to do. And we did a lot of drawings and we developed this sort of fantasy idea about having a tower and all sorts. And we definitely wanted it to be an eco building. And I think, you know, with a little bit of persuasion, we basically were given planning in like seven weeks without a meeting. I mean, it was unbelievable. You never get that now. Yeah. So tell us, what did you decide to build? Because it's basically a building in three parts, isn't it, Sarah, I think? It's really two parts. It's really just (laughs) the office and the house, as I've said. And, you know, they share a party wall, but effectively they're two separate buildings and they've got a very different character. So partly because the office addresses the street and it's really the size of the dwellings nearby. And that was a kind of issue around trying to get it through planning. So it wasn't overly large development. And the house is sort of tucked in along the long flank with its back against a retaining wall. And behind that is a modern housing development So essentially, it kind of looks south over a sunny garden, Mm. and then there's this north wall which looks out over the site adjacent. But, you know, it's an L shape, and the office addresses the railway line, and the rest addresses our garden. And really, that's it. There's a a sort of hard courtyard with a sliding gate where you can park a car, although we don't own one. And then there's the productive garden sort of beyond that on the other side of the fence. And it's a simple party, really. And I mean, it was all about really this idea of sort of swapping genres. So the office is small like a house and it's clad like a kind of cushion. Mm. And whereas the house is large, it's a bit like a kind of open plan office and it's clad in Wrigley tin. So there's these genre swappings going on where you don't really know which part of the building you're in. You could be in one or the other. And that was very deliberate because it was really 
partly a sort of biographical, mm. which is it's sort of my house as female architect and um, householder. And, you know, where am I playing what role? You know, it's kind of asks these questions. It's worth pointing out that this is your first new build as well, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that's not quite true. For my part three, I built a building that someone else had abandoned halfway through. Right. So I suppose you could argue I was doing that. But I mean, it was the first one I had ever detailed for myself and seen and built. You know, the rest had been small sort of conversions and, you know, other bits and bobs like that in North London houses. So, yeah, it was a learning curve, I can tell you that. I'm sure. And materially, there's a lot going on. I mean, the office block is on stilts or, or gabions, uh, essentially metal cages full of rubble. The wall facing the railway is clad with sandbags for its acoustic properties. You used old railway sleepers. And most famously, the walls of the bedroom wing and the wall along the back of the living area are made of straw bales. And the house is often referred to as the straw bale house. That's right. So I mean, the obvious question is, why straw? Well, straw is a brilliant insulator. A lot of people sort of think perhaps it's a very willful project, but actually every decision we made was quite rigorous. So essentially, we were trying to choose materials with low embodied energy. Mm. We were also trying to choose materials which were either recycled or recyclable. So for example, the straw is one of those. I mean, it's a waste product basically, but so are the recycled concrete in the gabions. And so is the insulation in the main walls, which is recycled newspaper mashed up and blown in. Right. The sleepers are recycled and we found them on the site. So there's this idea that actually you can incorporate and reuse things that you would normally think of as waste. I mean, the second thing was that we were looking for materials that you could self-build with. In other words, we were trying to get away a bit from the idea that you needed massive expertise to build. And because it was a self-build project, we were trying to sort of encourage self-building, but in a more interesting and innovative way, really. And straw bales really fitted that bill because, you know, we learned how to do it in one weekend on a course at the Centre Alternative Technology. And then we taught our builders and we taught our friends. And, you know, it was a really empowering thing to do. And so that really hit the spot. Am I right in saying that there wasn't really an accepted way of building with straw bales at that time? You were kind of making up a system as you um, went along? Yeah. I mean, in the UK... There were a few buildings being built by Barbara Jones, but um, there's no tradition of building in straw really in the UK. And what we learned, we learned from America mm. and we learned from books which were sort of developed by self-build communities. And they were very different from the kind of books you get in an architecture school, which is quite dogmatic and full of details. I mean, this was much more experimental. And actually, I found it very liberating to think, okay, these guys have tried this, they've tried that, they've tried the other, what would work in our circumstances, and then sort of take it from there. So, you know, again, we were sort of learning and making it up as mm. we, we went along, but with rigorous research as well. And in fact, we were very lucky that we went to, we were invited to go to Interbuild to make a stand called Facades of the Future. And we thought this was fantastic, because Future systems are going to be there with their Lord stand. We thought, well, this would make the most fantastic antidote to this so-called really high-tech aluminium shell-like structure. You know, we're going to go and we're going to build this thing and we are going to show them that there is another way of doing it. And we did, you know. <laughs> I mean, myself and 
our employee Gillian Horn and Jeremy, we all went up to Interbuild in the van and we, we had all the bales in the van and we built this damn thing and we learned how to do it. It was amazing. It was such an amazing opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, it all flowed from there, really. What are the issues of building with the material, Sarah? I mean, I guess insects, rodents, arson, are there, are there things you have to take into account? Oh, yeah. I mean, arson is a problem when you're building because lots of straw floats off. And the little wispy bits are the bits that can be set alight very easily. The bale itself's not so much a problem because it's so compressed so you can't get any oxygen into it, like trying to burn a phone directory or something. Rodents, I guess they could be a problem and so could beetles and other things, but they're quite small and a bale is really big. So I think it's going to take a very long time. Rot, you've got to keep them dry. And so all our efforts were into trying to stop anything getting in or getting out while we're retaining a sort of um, a ventilation gap mm. in order that they could breathe and remain dry. And we used a rain screen cladding on the outside rather than something like render, which could move and could crack. And then you'd get water in and before you knew where you were, you'd have compost. But on the inside side, it's all render right. So for fire reasons. And, you know, it's never cracked. Despite the fact that this is a very tricky site to work on because it suffers vibration from the railway line. And I think that is an amazing testament to that material, actually. I mean, it's both tough, but it's very forgiving. Mm. Lime render. Yeah. Traditional lime render. And I think that's actually another thing we got very interested in is sort of reinventing older knowledge, but using it in a new environment. So there are all these low-tech materials that you've told us about. But there are high-tech elements to the house as well. The, the building was on springs, for example. Indeed. And that was because of this vibration that I've just talked about. Now, you've got to bear in mind, this is a railway line that's leaving King's Cross. It's going to Edinburgh and it's going to Cambridge and Hertfordshire and places like that. So there's a lot of traffic along it. It's just before the trains go into the tunnel. So you get a lot of kadunk around here, you know, <laughs> and there's something like six or seven lines opposite. So we did lots of testing and we actually decided, yeah, we should spend our contingency putting it, the whole building on springs to try and counteract that vibration. And I do think that was a really good move, actually. It was one of those sort of do or die moments right at the beginning where you have to make a decision to spend this money now mm. because you cannot retrofit it later. Everything sits on springs and in the house, they're at low level, right underneath all the columns at, on the ground. And in the office, they're on top of the gabions underneath the main beams. So it's like, you can't do that later. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and can we describe what the architecture scene looked like 20 years ago and why your house would come as quite a shock, really? Okay, well, I guess one of the things is you've got to bear in mind that Islington has 50% conservation area and it's known as a sort of Georgian suburb. So it's quite conservative, I think, in terms of what it thinks of as good architecture. And actually, there had been almost no buildings that were really modern, which had been given planning permission when we decided to apply. The one building which I think paved the way was Future Systems Glass House on Marquess Road, near Essex Road. And mm. that had got some plaudits. I think it might have won some awards. And I think the council became a little bit more emboldened after that. And they sort of thought, well, maybe, you know, we could do this. And then we came along. And I think the ecological arguments meant quite a lot to them. I think they were trying to sort of get with it a little bit. And I mean, the other thing they said to us was, well, it doesn't really matter because it's a backland site and you can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Literally out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. There you exactly. go. I mean, also, it's worth pointing out, and I've been doing a uh, looking at the old press clippings from 20 years ago, that eco-design, for want of a better term, was very much seen as a marginal activity. Yeah, there are constant references in the various pieces to the good life or hippie communes yes. in North Wales. Um, so sustainability was obviously hugely important to you at that point. I mean, everybody talks about the compost toilet that you had, but there were plenty of other features as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is designed really around passive solar principles. So the buildings face south or southwest, southeast or southwest, because the grid is actually on that orientation. And that was really all about trying to get a sunny garden and get good light into the office. Then it's a fabric first approach, which has become absolutely standard now. Mm. So, you know, you do all of the work by making sure that the building is really well insulated. Small windows on the north side where you're going to lose a lot of heat and lots of insulation there. That's the straw bale. Then windows on the south side to let light in, particularly low level lights in the winter, which helps to preheat it. I mean, we've got a green roof, which helps to stabilize temperatures in the summer and also provides really good biodiversity. We've got productive gardens, so we grow our own vegetables. Mm. We don't have a car. We cycle everywhere. So it's more than just the building. It's actually a whole lifestyle as Mm. well. Mm. And I think that was really not something terribly thought about. I think it was still quite niche at that point. Well, it's probably still quite niche, actually, but very niche at that time. It's less niche now. (laughs) Less niche now, yeah. But, you know, very much inspired by the people who went before us, like, you know, Walter Seagull and Archetype and you know, the pioneers. Really. Yeah, yeah. Because they weren't, I mean, I, I can think of uh, around that time, Bill Dunster was talking about these issues, but not that many people were. Not really in the mainstream. Mm. I mean, you know, arguably it's much more mainstream now, although I still think there's a lot of people don't really understand it very well. But I think at that time it was very, very niche and really you could count the practitioners on one hand, really. I mean, Archetype are probably the kind of best known. Bill is, yeah, I mean, a real pioneer as well. But really, it was a handful. Mm. And I think, as I said, one of the things I think we were very keen on was not just thinking about waste streams and things, but actually what that meant for a new aesthetic in architecture. Because a lot of buildings which look very normal, modernist buildings, you know, will claim themselves to be green buildings. But actually, I think it's much deeper than that. And you really need to rethink your relationship with manufacturing, with products, with your lifestyle, with how you consume and what you consume and so forth. It's much, much deeper than that. And it's very easy to put a green gloss on it. But actually, the issues are absolutely kind of everywhere, networked around everything that we do. And actually, you know, trying to change that is a much, much more difficult thing. Yeah, yeah. Your role, we've touched on this a little bit, but it'd be good to look at it in more depth. Your role within the office and the home is also an important feature. Work and domesticity meet in one spot with a conference table. At least it's a conference table by day and then it becomes your dining table in the evening. This notion of your role in the house, is there a feminist agenda going on? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course there is. Yeah. As I've said, I mean, I think it it is semi-autobiographical. I mean, because it is a sort of weaving of what is my role as householder or as the person who runs the office. And, you know, the conference room is in a sense a condenser of those ideas because 
it does have our dining table in it and it does have dual use, but it's very obviously a domestic space, although we have all our meetings there for the office. So people will walk in and they'll see this very large picture window, which is a bit like a proscenium. So you, there's this sense of performativity about mm. it. And you'll be thinking about, well, what role am I playing here? You know, it's got domestic pictures on the walls and stuff like that. And you're kind of taken aback and it makes you think a little bit about who am I? What sort of a place have I walked into? And yet, you know, you then end up playing a particular role depending on how it's all organized and who's there and all the rest of it. And I think that's very interesting. And I can't think of a lot of examples of architecture which does that, actually. So, you know, it kind of works in an odd way. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's quite interesting. Theatre is a word that comes up again and again, actually, in all yes. the research. It's quite interesting. So there is an array of ideas going on. I'm kind of intrigued how you and Jeremy work together on it. There's a, a lovely film by Jim Stevenson that you did this year, I think, yeah. with you discussing the project with fellow architect Piers Taylor. And you say that the pair of you, and I'm going to quote, made a rule that you'd only talk about it, you wouldn't draw anything. So how did that work? Well, I think one of the things we were trying to explore there was the idea of authorship. Mm. And we wanted to both claim authorship. And the problem is that when one of you put something down on paper, they tend to start claiming it. And if we were going to have a sort of equal relationship in what we did there, we thought that's a bad idea. So we're just going to fantasize about it. So we actually spent about four years just talking about it <laughs> and dreaming about what it could be like, like, you know, silly ideas like, oh, it's going to be up on stilts or, you know, I really like this building by X or Y. Or I want a tower because I want a place of dreams, very Bachelardian, you know, blah, blah. And eventually, I think the agenda about living and working and about these two separate buildings, which would join but separate, it just all began to sort of fall into place. And then, then there's some very pragmatic stuff of just sort of plonking it on the site and making it work. But I think it was very fully formed as a set of ideas before it got put on paper. And I think that's really important if you want to sort of both have a say in it, mm. um, an equal say. But presumably somebody had to put a mark on a piece of paper at some point. So was that you, Sarah, who did yeah, that first? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably more me than Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, we were both doodling around. A lot. When it came to doing the working drawings, he took some time off from the Bartlett actually to help on that. And he really, really likes the technical stuff. And I think, you know, possibly he might have stayed in architecture had computers been commonplace at the time. But he finds drawing quite difficult and I find it really easy. And I mean, that was another part of the dynamic, actually. I think there was a sense if I started drawing, which was my natural instinct, mm. then he could be left out of the conversation. We didn't want that. Right. So, yeah, were he to be drawing in computers, he possibly could have ended very, very differently with yeah. him much more involved. Yeah, yeah. And to cap it all, the project was on the first series of Grand Designs. What was it like having a young Kevin McLeod poking around? There's a very curious interlude where he went off and built his own house out of straw, which I don't think was typical of the series back then either. No. Well, I think series one, they were trying to work out what they were doing. And I think they didn't really understand anything about building, to be fair. And Kevin <laughs> had come, I think, from 
uh, well, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what he'd done before, actually, because I didn't used to have a television for years and years. I think he was lighting designer. Yes, that's his career. But I didn't know. I don't know whether he had been on television before he started on Grand Designs. Right. And they kept saying to me, oh, it's going to be like changing rooms, only big. And I said to them, well, what's changing rooms? I'd never <laughs> heard of it. <laughs> and they were like, who are you? You know, <laughs> I genuinely didn't know anything about it. Anyway, he actually, I think, was fine. He was very, very interested and very um, positive, actually, and very sort of encouraging about all the green stuff, which, you know, he could have just rolled his eyes and thought, oh, God, bunch of hippies, um, which actually was a kind of typical reaction, sort of, yeah, the good life, you know, all that. But he was really into it. And to be fair to him, you know, he has named the project as one of his five favorite projects. Oh. So I'm quite chuffed about that. Yeah, there you go. And I think for him, actually, it was partly a self-education. I think Channel 4 didn't have a clue what it took to make a building. And, you know, doing a kind of set like a, a room is one thing. Doing a whole building, especially one this ambitious... Um, was really out of their league, I think. Mm. And they kept ringing me up and saying, oh, you know, what have you got going on? And why haven't you made any progress? And all the rest of it. And, I mean, it was very difficult because I just had to say, look, I'm having a crisis. You know, I'm, I'm struggling to get this building out. And I just don't really want you around. And I've got nothing to show you. You know, like, I'm sorry to be really disappointing. And they kept saying to me, oh, but we've got all our schedules set up. And how are we, what are we going to present, you know, when, when it comes around in nine months time? And I was like, I don't know. It's not my problem. <laughs> and, and that was the reason that Kevin went off and built his own because uh, basically they didn't have a product. If you track back the very first showing of this project, we'd only got the steel frame up. You know, it was that bad. Oh, really? <laughs> so no wonder they had ah. to find something to show. Yeah. And then they came back subsequently twice to refilm it. The first time we'd moved into the office and we'd just about got the house sorted out. And the second time, I think we might even have finished furbishing the tower, which we couldn't afford to do first time around. So, yeah. you know, there were a couple of revisits and they've recut it and then it all went, went fine. And they got rid of Kevin's bit, I think. Yeah. No, I watched the revisit the other day and Kevin's bit is still very much there. But there's a lovely moment where he turns to camera and he says um, they're taking all the risks personally, financially, academically, professionally. They're putting everything on the line. Is that how you felt, I wonder? Or was that just a bit of drama for the telly? I think I did feel that, but not everything all at once, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I felt all of those four categories at different times. I think I only once felt a total wobble where I thought, crikey, I've really bitten off more than I can chew here. And this could be the biggest disaster of my life. I mean, it's really funny, isn't it? You just, once you're in it, you just have to keep going and see it through. And now I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I think it's absolutely fantastic to make a place the way you love it and you want it to be. Mm. And there's no greater gift, really. And I think all the hard work kind of paid off really and when i look at bits of it and i think wow that looks beautiful or you know the light's really beautiful or i like the relationship between x and y you know i think it's lovely so yeah can we talk about your background sarah your father was an architect your mother was a doctor um we seem to have a tremendous number of people with medical backgrounds on this show it's quite strange both my parents are doctors but we won't get stuck in that were you always going to be one or the other i wonder 
No, I wanted to study physics to start with. (laughs) But I think that was just failure of imagination. And I think actually deep down, I always thought I might be an architect because, I don't know, I just thought I'm good at arts, I'm good at science, and I don't know anything about architecture, so it just seemed like kind of logical thing to do. I don't know why I wasn't really interested in medicine. Now I think I should have been a doctor possibly, but I don't know, whatever. Why is that? I really fancy myself as a surgeon. (laughs) And I said that to peers as well, because I really love making things. And I think the idea of doing intellectual work and sewing, for example, you know, Mm. fiddling around with the body and with a needle and thread, that that seems perfect to me. I'd love that. (laughs) But I'm not going to retrain at this age. There's a doctor called Roger Kneebone who's done a lot of work with I know him uh, surgeons I've seen and him. tailors. Yeah, it's really interesting research. I think your father gutted the Victorian villa you lived in in North London and modernised it. That's right. And he also built a second home in Hampshire that was inspired by the early work of Frank Lloyd Wright. I'm intrigued. Did that affect the thinking of where you live now? Those two projects. Oh, undoubtedly, mm. absolutely. I absorbed all of this really osmotically. I suppose I wasn't really that aware of Frank Lloyd Wright when he built that house, which is like a Usonian house, actually. It was really beautiful. And there were some lovely ideas in it. Like, for example, because it was a holiday home, all the bedrooms for the children were like absolutely minimal. They were like cabins on an ocean liner with bunk beds and just enough room to open the door, but with no cupboard space and a window at the other end opposite the door. And then everything had to be hung in cupboards in the hallway outside. And it was just a lovely idea. And I often think back about that and think, you know, you actually probably wouldn't get planning permission for that anymore because it would be deemed to be not big enough as a bedroom, you know, undersized and everything. But it was just beautiful. And its relationship with exterior was lovely. And I remember thinking that the courtyards outside, that sort of transition between inside and outside was really beautifully done. But I suppose the epiphany when I really thought, yes, architecture is what I want to do, is when he took us to see Ronchon. And I was completely bowled over Mm. by that building. I mean, and it is an amazing building. It's the sort of cave on the top of a hill. And the light quality and the tactility, the walls, all of those things just really, really made an impression upon me. And that's when I decided that I wanted to be an architect. And I was probably about, I don't know, 13 years old or something like that. But I mean, you know, he did drag us around a lot of architecture as well. Like we went on a trip to Finland to see Alto and stuff like that. And we saw the Paimo uh, Sanatorium and all sorts. But it was Ronchamp that just turned my head. Mm, interesting. Was he happy when you decided to become an architect? Oh, I don't really know. I'm not sure. I think he was possibly a bit ambivalent about it. Mm. I think he wasn't unhappy. I mean, there was quite a lot of shared conversation about stuff. But at the same time, I mean, I often think, what did he make of Stock Orchard Street? I was going to ask you that. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think he got it at all. Right. I mean, I think that says that we're from very different eras in architecture. And I mean, after all, you know, my dad ended up being head of housing at the GLC during the late 70s and early 80s. And, you know, he retired when the GLC was abandoned by Thatcher. So he was steeped in rebuilding Britain after the war mm. and the kind of modernist project and the housing projects that were being built at the time. And I think, you know, that was a very, very different mission, wasn't it? And actually, prior to that, he'd been building schools 
for the Ministry of Education and for ILEA and so on. And he'd been working on prefabrication and all the things we're doing again now and writing building bulletins and this kind of thing. And, you know, it was a very different world then. And the opportunities open to him were massively different as well. But I mean, you know, climate change was hardly on the agenda. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting generationally how different our careers and lives are. And so no wonder he didn't get it, you know, <laughs> poor guy. Why should he? You know, he's just interested in very, very different things. What was it like trying to forge a career as a female architect? You talked in the film about Cambridge and finding it difficult, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Um, oh, God. How long have we got? It's a podcast. We can go on for as long as we like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm on record as saying that I found it a fairly sort of unwelcoming environment. And that's not just sort of because the data says that only five colleges would admit women, and apart from the female colleges at the time, immediately you feel like you're not terribly welcome. Then I think there's a whole kind of culture about elite institutions, which I don't fit into terribly well. The fact that there were no female tutors at all throughout my entire career, mm. I think not great for role models, but it was more than that. I mean, it's to do with the discourse and who decides what's important or who's of value, whose work gets cited, whose books get read, who are considered the greats and all of that. And women's contribution just didn't figure at all. And whilst I don't think that's everything, I think it was also about, I remember saying to this tutor during a struggle I was having with the design, oh, it's all about compromise, you know, and trying to work out, you know, weighing up the balance between these different competing forces. And he said, no, it's not. It's all about having a really strong concept. <laughs> and I was really taken aback because, you know, it's a bit like, well, okay, so it's just abstract, is it? It's just all about the ideas. And whilst I absolutely agree that ideas are central to architecture, you know, and I've been talking about that during this podcast, mm. you know, I think to not acknowledge, for example, the user in your work, say, or the material specification or, you know, those kinds of things, that's shocking as well. So I think the issue around values is the thing that I am most interested in in the debate about gender. And I think whilst numbers and role models are really important because they do tell younger people that it's possible and give them something to look up to. I think there's a much bigger project, which is, of course, the more difficult one and more is going to be longer term and is hard to shift, which is actually about what we value, about what we do. And I think there are some really interesting things happening now with diverse voices coming into the frame mm. and with a conversation about whose history is the history that we should take notice of and how we show that different values can be meaningful in architecture. So it's very unfinished. That's really just at the beginning. But I sort of remain hopeful that it started, and that's the very least that we can expect at the moment, but I really hope it develops momentum. Mm. Do you think it's got easier for women now in the profession? Oh, I think it's undoubtedly easier. I mean, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day, uh, which came out on International Women's Day, actually. RIBA had found, I think, three or four tapes by women who had been speaking towards the end of their careers at Reba, and one of them was Jane Drew, and there were various yeah. others. And, you know, they were all talking about what it was like to be a woman post-war or interwar 
or whatever. And my God, I mean, it was really shocking how overtly sexist the world was then and how, you know, making your way was seen as so extraordinary. So, of course, it's got better. But that's not to say there isn't masses of work to do. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I think we need to make space for women and all kinds of diverse experiences, opinions and ideas, because it will surely enrich the whole thing if we're open to it. You talked about your time in Cambridge that uh, I'm going to paraphrase you that there was some kind of, I think you described it as Kabbalistic knowledge that people had that they wouldn't give up (laughs) and you had to try and grasp it on your own. I'm just wondering, is that where your interest in education came from? Because you were teaching at Sheffield for, what, 19 years or something? Yeah. I think in the early stages, it was because I got very frustrated with practice being wholly pragmatic and not really valuing ideas. And I mean, I'd come out of Cambridge at that point, having been taught by Dalibor Vesely and Peter Carl and Eric Parry. You know, they were a shot of sort of what I'd call middle European philosophers really into the scene and I mean it was an awakening I mean it was just completely different from anything I'd experienced before and for me the diploma was a sort of crash course in actually mugging up on stuff that I had completely uh, sort of been absent in my undergraduate years and so that suddenly gave a massive impetus to thinking about the importance of ideas in architecture So I went into teaching because actually I got a phone call from a a former tutor offering me a part-time teaching job. I'd just got my part three. I was a bit sort of languishing in the practice I was in, and I just felt that the intellectual agenda was really poor. And I thought that might be a way of filling the gap, to be honest. And that was sort of the start of a sort of love affair with ideas, actually, and infusing a practice with a theoretical agenda. And I still believe that's really, really important. I think too little of that happens. I mean, I think business is often used as the excuse to sort of lay down and die, let's put it that way, and sort of lose your ideas and not cling on to the things that you think are really important. Obviously, you have to make a living. But at the same time, I mean, for me, retaining an integrity and an identity about the things that I'm interested in or we as a practice are interested in is really, really important. And I think you make your own luck that way. The people that you want to work with are attracted to you because of that. Yeah. And so it's a self-fulfilling thing, really. Yeah, and yeah. you do need a kind of clear sense of what you're about. And I think ideas give you that. Well, I was going to ask you about what your notion of what architecture is about, because there aren't any flashy art galleries on your CV. There's plenty of schools and housing no. projects. I mean, it's this notion of celebrating the ordinary, I guess. Yeah, Jeremy and I wrote a book called The Everyday in Architecture, which is in a Wiley Academy AD, um, just before, or just while we were designing Stock Orchard Street, actually. And I think this was another thing that came out of the Cambridge thing. I mean, Cambridge always said, oh, we are going to design art galleries. We are going to design the sort of elite buildings that go with being at the top of your game, you know, the pinnacle of architecture. So, you know, very subtly, you were inculcated with this idea about what the value system was. You know, if you didn't didn't get the art galleries, you were no good. And at the same time, we began to think, gosh, well, what about all the things that you do in the everyday world? And why does our built environment look so crappy on the whole? You know, because actually people are not paying attention to these everyday background buildings. 
and we thought, well, actually, this elitism that was fed us at college actually needs to be questioned and criticised and brought under scrutiny. And so we got very interested in the everyday. And of course, in my diploma, Denise Scott Brown and Robert Venturi were writing, you know, Complexity and Contradiction and Las mm. Vegas and all these things which were also critiquing elite architecture, culture. And it sort of all seemed to come together. And so we wrote this book, which actually was the first essay published in the UK by Sam Mockby in it, you know, and the Rural Studio. And, and we'd never discovered the Rural Studio before mm. then. And so we got really, really interested in these this modest but effective collaborations with people, actually. I mean, I think that's the other thing. And it goes back to the story I was telling about the tutor at Cambridge talking about concepts, you know. I think it became really clear to me quite quickly that people didn't really figure in that yeah. equation. You know, the concept was the artist's concept. So the elite artist, the sort of Rockian idea of the artist architect, the purity of their concept was absolutely everything. And, you know, to hell with everyone else. <laughs> so we thought, actually, we need to get people back in the equation. That was one of the things that, you know, Sambo did amazingly, you know, work with really underprivileged communities in Alabama to bring about social change. And that seems to be so important. Mm, mm. And that's the everyday, you know, it's the sort of the architecture that you consume without really thinking about it because it's just there in the background all the time. Um, what have you learned from Stock Orchard Street, Sarah? You've taken the use of materials into other projects throughout your career. The straw bales have been used, for example. I think there's a massive underprivileging of the sensory in architecture. I think so much of it is about surface and the sort of slickness of that, if you like. And what I'm really actually interested in is the material quality that is a visceral thing. It's a sort of sensory, haptic thing you experience through your body as much as your mind. And actually, there have been a few projects which have really explored that in great detail in our work. I mean, they're modest projects, again, but something like uh, Mossbrook School, which was a tiny classroom for the future for children with autism. You know, the fact of autism just brought out this need to explore the world through sensory and other means, you know, not visual, not cerebral, not conceptual, but actually how your body relates to the world around you. You know, so it had these displays which were made of felt and metal. They were sort of hairy. They were shiny. They were soft. They were hard and harsh, cold or warm. You know, I mean, all of these sort of characteristics which are very, very tactile and visceral for children to experience. And I think in a way that says a lot about what we're interested in. And I think those ideas, you know, carried on that idea of a building for education being something which is a teaching tool in its own right spins out into Sandal Magna School with its brick and timber and Takeley School and Mella, particularly with its straw bale wall that makes a reappearance. And then that beautiful habitat wall on the mm. outside, because it's mm. all about forest school. And I just sort of think architects often work like they've got one hand tied behind their back. Why not use the full plethora of what's available to you? Because actually people respond so incredibly well to it. And you can sense that they know something's missing with all the manufactured products that get stuck together in what's mostly the architectural output in the UK. 
So I think, yeah, that's what I'm mostly interested in. Good. <laughs> You've recently renovated Stock Orchard Street. It's interesting because sustainability, as we've discussed, is part of the mainstream now. And the technology, I think, is really interesting. It's changed massively. You brought in a consultant called N Habitat to look at the house. What did they discover? How have you changed the house in terms of its sustainable profile? Yeah, they're actually called N Habit, by the way. <laughs> Beg your pardon, N Habit. <laughs> Just want you to get it right. <laughs> um, we decided that the place looked a bit shabby and we needed to do a bit of a refurb. And again, almost organically, this project began to develop. We thought, well, you know, what had been really cutting edge green when we built it, this is an opportunity to really upgrade it actually in line with the change of building regulations, the change of equipment and the availability of good products. And having been there for nearly, well, it was at this stage, it was about 15 years. Mm. We thought it would be really interesting to use the new software programs and analytical techniques to verify our own lived experience with 20 years or 15 years of this post-occupancy experience, pretty much with feedback from us about what we felt worked and didn't, it would be really good to verify that through the data. And so Inhabit did this series of tests on it, really, like measuring U-value across walls. They did thermal imaging. They built a passive house planning package model and looked at our energy bills and tried to align the two and so on and so on. I mean, they did a whole raft of different things and basically kind of identified a number of places where it obviously wasn't working very well. Some of them were quite obvious, like leakage around windows. Right. I wanted to replace some of the windows anyway because they hadn't performed terribly well. And that's interesting as well because high-tech kit has just improved massively over that period of time. Then we drew up a list of things that we could do and we did a sort of cost-benefit analysis on them. We looked at, if we did this, what would the benefit be in terms of energy use? What would the benefit be in terms of comfort? And what would that cost us? So this kind of matrix began to appear about, these are really low-hanging fruit, good targets to start with. And then what else do we do? And so we did lots of stuff. The biggest thing was probably making the building airtight right? because we had a lot of uncontrolled air leakage because that just wasn't on our radar when we designed it at all. There were certain places where we were getting cold bridging through the steel frame, and we decided to add additional insulation to stop that. Then we added some insulation to whole walls, and some of our roof lights were leaking quite badly, so we replaced them with better examples. And we put some external blinds in to control the sunlight hitting the windows on the southwest elevation, which were prone to overheating during the summer months, which again, you know, when we designed it, we had no access to any of this software mm. and we were just sort of sucking and seeing really. So this gave us the opportunity to really upgrade it. And actually, I mean, it wasn't complicated stuff, but it did go everywhere. So, I mean, it was like almost every bit of the fabric we sort of took up, took apart and reassembled. And it was an opportunity, of course, to upgrade things like, you know, we'd, we'd put a very poorly wearing floor in the house because we'd run out of money at that point. So we managed to put back an engineered oak board. So that's nice. So it looks much nicer as well. But I mean, the main thing is, is that we've just upgraded the fabric massively and it's cut our energy by 62%. Wow. And have all the materials, you know, the straw bales, the sandbags, have they behaved in the way you expected them to over the years? Yeah, they have. The straw 
actually behaved exactly as predicted. And I think that that shows how the R&D we did on it was absolutely well-founded and really paid dividends. Then the sandbags, yeah, I mean, they've pretty much behaved exactly as we had intended. I mean, whether they'll last for 60 years, I don't know. But I suppose part of what we were trying to do with the office was think about this duvet covering that we've got around it. Could that be something which you could actually change in the course of time? And it could be, although it can last a long time. So there's no reason to unless you want to sort of change your spots. Um, And the gabions, well, I mean, they're not really going to go anywhere. You know, I think like any building, it's like a body. It needs maintenance and repair now and again. And, you know, you need to look after it, don't you? Um, And, you know, paint on preservative now and again on the timber and stuff like that. But, I mean, I think you'd expect that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't expect a building to not need maintenance. Yeah, yeah. And part of this renovation has been about you and Jeremy getting older, um, to put it, you know, politely. Designing for old age is something you're kind of interested in. This is a topic that you're spending a lot of time thinking about. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when you get to my age and you studied it like I have with the Dwell Project, Mm. you realise that most of our buildings are not really designed for thinking about your older age. And typically people start worrying about getting to the front door, up some steps or going up to their bedroom when they're in a crisis situation and I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to make sure that whatever position we found ourselves in as we grew older, that we had made provision for it while we were compostmentous and in good health and we made decisions that we were happy with, had tested out. For example, like, you know, I didn't want to get to the point where I would be finding reading the new instructions to an unfamiliar piece of kit like a hob or an oven mm. when I really wasn't in the frame of mind to understand it. Silly things like that, but really important. And because we don't have kids, we converted the downstairs into a sort of almost a, an independent suite, which a carer could live in if push comes to shove. But the point about doing it in your 60s is that you're well provided for and you have enough opportunities for exercise and to be independent and to live an active life to keep you busy and to keep you well. And we've got a great garden and we cycle everywhere. So we're pretty fit. I think we've got a reasonably good formula. I mean, as good as can be expected, really. Mm, mm. Apart from perhaps, you know, air pollution because we live in the city, but you know. So our hour is basically up, Sarah. Um, Final question before I let you go and do some proper work. What can we expect from you in the future? What do you have on the the slate? Well, that's a good question. I'm sort of still looking for my dream exit project, (laughs) (laughs) but it better come soon. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I don't really mind what I design, but we're chasing, you know, schools work. We're chasing housing work. We are doing a lot of retrofit at the moment. And I, again, I think that's very unsung work, but actually incredibly important. And I think design in that is very important as well. You know, contractors can do it, but actually making sure you get it all right is fantastically important. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a new typology that's coming our way that would be very nice to be involved in. I don't want to say too much about that, but it would be really good to um, 
win that project ultimately. So yeah, don't know, just chasing a whole range of stuff. I mean, and I feel like we have a lot of experience under our belt, a lot of R&D. We know a lot about a whole range of things. And it would be very nice to sort of hand the baton over to my staff so that they can carry on in the manner of. And I'd really love to do another development, actually. And we're thinking about how we might do that and maybe sort of make very low energy homes for people, which are also age friendly, because we're not seeing a lot of that come forward Mm. from development at the moment. After the pandemic, it is so obviously a no brainer that that's what we need to do. Build for the long term, build well, build a bit bigger so that people have more space so they can do different things in their home when they need to, build flexibly and build for the whole life course. And what Dwell interestingly told us is, you know, if you think about building for old age, actually it works for everybody all the way back down the line. It can work for a younger family with a kid just as much as it can for an older person. And I think that's a bit of a game changer, actually. And it'd be very nice to do something around that and lead by example, because I don't see a lot of that happening. Mm. Mm. Build for the long term and build well. That's a good place to leave it. Sarah, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you. It's been really fun. And to discover more about Sarah's practice, go to swarch.co.uk. As ever, there are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, this is really important. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. Just so you know, I've introduced a new tier. So now for only £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you could offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.